Hello and welcome to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm your host, Adam A. Donaldson. Joining me a bit later today will be Peter Salmon. And uh, I've been thinking about Peter a lot, not necessarily uh, Peter Salmon, but uh, I've been watching that uh, showcase series uh, about... um, the Adventures of Young Robert Langdon, The Lost Symbol, and there's a character in that named Peter Solomon. Uh, so it sounds like Peter Salmon, almost. So uh, I've been getting very involved in the kidnapping of Peter Solomon. <laughs> oh, that show is delightful trash, but uh, it, you know, delightful trash can work on its own. Do we think Dune is delightful trash? I guess you'll have to find out. And Credits is a local movie show for local movie fans, and we are here every Wednesday at 3 p.m. to talk the latest in pop culture and and review the news movies, which this week will be the new epic sci-fi fantasy Dune, as I said, which you can now see in a theater near you, including both of the main Cineplex theaters in Guelph. That is in the back half of the show. Uh, For the first half, uh, we're going to continue our interviews with... Well, Film Festival filmmakers. I'm very excited about this interview. It is with Elmaya Tellfeathers, and she is an actress and director, and this is her first feature-length documentary. You may recognize Elmaya Tellfeathers. Um, she was in Blood Quantum. Uh, she is in Night Raiders, which is currently out in theaters. I think it's at the bookshelf this week, too, so you can check that out. So she is a very busy woman, and for the last several years, she's been making this documentary called Gimani Bitsen, and I think I pronounced it correctly that time. Uh, Gimani Bitsen, The Meaning of Empathy, which is about the uh, opioid crisis and the drug addiction crisis in her community in Alberta, the amongst the Blackfoot community in Alberta, which is the largest reserve of indigenous people in the country, uh, land-wise speaking, I believe, if not population-wise. So there's a lot to talk about. It's a, it's a, in terms of length, it's like a two-hour and five-minute documentary. So it is a journey that she takes you on. So there was so much with this movie to talk about. Uh, this is going to be an edited version. There's a much longer version <laughs> of this interview. Uh, I, I will release at some point, but I, I hope this gets the gist, and I hope this gets you interested in actually checking out Gimane Bitsen uh, when it comes out with the rest of the slate of Guelph Film Festival starting next week. And uh, I'll play that interview right now. So, El Maya Tailfeathers, thank you so much for joining me today. Okay, thank you for having me. Um I, I wanted to make sure, uh, I, I do normally like to make sure I can pronounce things right, but for the title of your movie, I wanted to do it on the record as, as you were listening and you can proctor me, um, but it is Key Manny Bitson. How did I do? <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, Gimma B. Bitson. Gimma B. Bitson. Okay. Uh, see, that, I'm glad that was on the record now. Now I... <laughs> Thank you for trying. I appreciate it. <laughs> there, there is a, a specific meaning behind the word, though. Um, and I know the movie goes into um, great detail ab- about uh, its meaning and its meaning to you. But can you just sort of uh, talk about it a bit? What, what does Gimani Bitsen mean um, both to the film and, and to um, the, your, your people in Alberta? 
Um, sure. Well, I, I am Blackfoot from Ghana or Kainai um, in southern Alberta. It's the largest reserve in Canada. Um, and Gimabibitsin is a Blackfoot word. Um, it's also a, a value or a teaching um, that uh, essentially means to, to have empathy, to give kindness, um, especially to those who are struggling. Um, and so in, in the context of the film, Gimabibitsin is about having empathy for our people who are living with substance use disorder and our people who are in recovery. Um, and it, it's also uh, a way of thinking about harm reduction through an Indigenous lens, um, because harm reduction is, is, is a means of uh, approaching addiction through empathy. Mm -hmm. How long was this in the works? Because I was so enthralled with like the various stories and the various people that we meet along the way. I, I wasn't paying too much attention to the title cards, but I do remember at one point, there was a date stamp on one scene and it was like May 2017. So this has been in the works for a while. How long were you working on this movie? Uh, this film took five years to make. So um, it was quite the journey. We, uh, we were actually filming for close to four years and then the edit was, was almost a year um, because of COVID. And uh, I spent a year developing the film. I don't expect you to have the exact answer, but maybe you could ballpark it. How much footage did you get? How many hours? Oh, uh, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> hundreds, hundreds of hours. Um, and uh, we had to kind of condense it all into, into a two hour, into a two hour film. Mm -hmm. And again, it, you know, it covers so much ground, uh, you know, and, and there any one of sort of these topics can sort of make their own movie. You know, you could focus on, you know, George and Leia's story, and that could be a movie. You could focus on like the, the politics of, you know, getting funding and establishing these programs. That could be a movie. I guess what, what, what was kind of your guide in terms of telling the story? Um, how, like, how did you balance all these various elements to try and tell one coherent story that covered as many bases as possible? Uh, well, yeah, that's a really great question. Um, the The opioid crisis uh, or, or fentanyl hit our communities uh, seven years ago. Um, and my mother, Dr. Esther Tailfeathers, uh, has been on the front lines of that crisis. And so through her, I've heard about all of the things she's experienced and have witnessed all of the community mobilization that's happening um, to try and find solutions. And um, I wanted to be able to document that process to show all of the hard work that's happening in the community, to show the experiences of people working on the front lines, um, but also to humanize the people who are living with substance use disorder um, and to share their experiences through an empathetic um, and human lens. And, uh, and I also wanted to be able to show that our community has a vast diversity of lived experiences and opinions, especially when it comes to how we treat addiction. Um, and we're also up against so many barriers. Um, many of them are, are um, institutional or, um, or policy level sort of barriers, funding level barriers, but also many of them are, these barriers are also about you know, structural and systemic racism um, and, and inequality that all indigenous people in Canada face. And so I had to try and put all of that 
together into a, a two hour long film that was digestible and understandable and relatable to a broad audience. Um, and yeah, it was certainly a challenge. Um, and that's why the edit took so <laughs> long because there were many iterations of the film and, and our first cut was like close to five hours long. Um, but it ultimately came down to trying to include as many voices as possible and trying to include a, you know, a diversity of voices from within the community. If someone were to come to you and say, hey, could you use all that footage, like turn this into like a five part or six part series? Um, I mean, is, is that kind of something you'd be interested in or does it like maybe having this in a two hour package kind of have like a, a, a succinct kind of punch to it where that, that might be lost if you're doing something a bit longer, multi parts or I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I've i toyed around with the idea of trying to turn it into into a series so that we can kind of get into these into these topics and on a, on a deeper level. Um, but in terms of just giving audiences something that they can kind of understand, you know, all of these 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 various issues that are at play that contribute to the larger narrative, I felt like, you know, a, a feature length documentary can achieve that in the sense that you can just hand it to someone or, you know, a classroom, a community um, and say, you know, here, watch this two hours and, and learn what you learn from it. Mm -hmm. How did your mom feel about being a main character in your movie? Oh, she really didn't want to be. <laughs> um, she's a very humble individual who commits all of her time and energy largely to our community. Um, and, and so she agreed to, be in the film just so long as I included uh, the work of, of so many others. And so um, she was she was very supportive in terms of making the film. Um, and her one condition on in participating was that I show that she's not the only one doing this this work. Mm -hmm. She seems like a busy woman, um, but I mean, all people in 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 this community who are working in healthcare and working in addiction and treatment are seem to be very busy people um has there been any you know since you sort of finished uh, filming the movie has there been any change in in your community has there you know i guess maybe there was a note at the end with you know that in 2020 the alberta government did cut funding to the arches center and now it's it's kind of running a, a sort of skeletal operation but i mean the opioid crisis, you, you said it goes back seven years in um, amongst the, the Blackfoot. Um, this is something that's kind of become more and more relevant to white settler communities in the last few years, especially since the start of the pandemic. Has there been sort of like any reflexive action that, you know, now governments sort of see the, the, the way opioids and addiction is working in, you know, our urban communities is there, does, is that having a reciprocal effect in in uh, indigenous communities? Yeah, it's um because Kainai is in southern Alberta, uh, they fall under the provincial jurisdiction of the the United Conservative Party and the Jason Kenney government, um, and the Jason Kenney government has cut funding to so many harm reduction services and agencies, including um, the supervised consumption site in Lethbridge, Alberta. Um, and many of the people who utilize that, that site were from our community. And since the closure of that site, um, we've witnessed 
the highest numbers of deaths due to drug poisoning or fatal overdose. Um, and that directly correlates with, with, the, with the closure of that site. Um, but further to that, um, the pandemic has, has exacerbated the problem because people are forced to, to use alone in many cases. And as we know, using alone can often result in, in a fatal overdose. Um, and so that's, that's been a, a huge struggle for our community and the grief is, is felt everywhere. Um, however, there, there have been some positives like the, um, the uh, safe withdrawal site or the detox that was, that was founded uh, uh, on Kainai during the making of the film um, has, has expanded. It's received um, some more long-term funding. They've been able to open um, aftercare. So when people come to the detox, they can stay as long as they need to until they can go into treatment. And when they finish treatment, they can come back and stay at the detox in the aftercare wing, um, which is such a necessary service because a lot of people um, you know, struggle with finding safe, stable, steady housing after they after they leave treatment, and so it's a way of ensuring that they can, um, ex, you know, experience long term recovery. Um, and so that's been a really wonderful thing to witness. I wanted to ask you about because I, I was reading some of the other interviews you'd done about the film. Um, you did not want this to be sort of, I guess, tragedy based and and trauma based. You can't get past though, like some of the things he suffered, and that they're in the movie. Like people are profiled who are themselves survivors of residential school, survivors of abuse. Um, it, I guess how do you how do you cover those topics, and while at the same time not making your movie about them? Uh, well, yeah, it's it's like you can't avoid you can't avoid that because that's 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 part of the story. Um, I think. When, when I say that I don't that I didn't want the film to be about you know trauma and tragedy I mean that I want audiences especially indigenous audiences to walk away with a sense of hope and a sense of pride in who we are um, I wanted non-indigenous audiences to be able to watch the film and recognize the strength and beauty of my community and all of the hard work that's happening there um, because I think stopping at trauma and tragedy um, doesn't generate action. Um, mm. And so at the end of this, I want people to, to, to wanna take action, to wanna support harm reduction initiatives, to wanna challenge um, our elected representatives to, to, to be um, more empathetic towards people who live with substance use disorder. And, and, um, and I think that doing that through an empathetic lens and, and through a human lens um, offers the opportunity for audiences to relate to people from within my community who are struggling um, on, a, on a human level. And you yourself get involved, like you are on camera quite a bit. Um, and I, you know, we, granted documentaries aren't news. We kind of confuse the two uh, sometimes. We think, you know, cause documentaries about real life, we should treat it like a news story. I guess the question is, you were always going to be invested in the story. These are your people. Your mom is a main character. Did you realize maybe how much you would get invested in these stories as you were starting the film? 
No, uh, initially I was, I, I, I didn't want to be part of the film. I didn't think it was really necessarily appropriate, but um, I realized that as a community member who was asking other community members to, you know, be vulnerable in front of the camera and share their stories, that uh, it, it made sense for me to also place my, myself in that position of vulnerability and, and, and be in front of the camera. Um, and I, I also, I think, made my mother a little bit more comfortable um, and my other family members more comfortable if I was there in front of the camera with them. Um, and, I, I, you know, there's documentary has this history where uh, I've, you know, outsider filmmakers coming into marginalized communities and extracting stories and then leaving. <laughs> um, and that's, that's, you know, not my process as a community member and, and someone who's documenting, you know, their family's journey. Um, and so it, it felt like I needed to be part of it. Um, and we also lost my, my cousin um, mm. during the making of the film. And so the film itself became quite personal in that sense. Um, and so I wanted to be able to share that journey of grief and that journey of understanding how harm reduction could have saved her life and how shame and stigma kill. Um, and so, yeah, for all of those reasons, I became part of the film in that, in that respect. Your other uh, vocation as an actor, um, people obviously are listening to this, so the, the audio, but if they were to see your face, they would probably recognize your face from movies. You're in Blood Quantum. You're in a new movie that's out right now called Night Raiders. And it strikes me, and I wanted to get your feedback on this. It strikes me maybe the only way to get white settler people like myself to understand the literal dystopia that indigenous people have lived under for 500 years is to project it through this fictionalized dystopia with zombies and uh, authoritarian governments and hover drones and all this. Um, is, is that fair? Is, I, I mean, are we kind of having a breakthrough moment by projecting the literal dystopia through the fictional dystopia? Yeah, absolutely. I think both uh, Dennis Goulet, the director of Night Raiders, and Jeff Barnaby, <clears throat> the director of Blood Quantum, are, are doing uh, incredible things in terms of taking, you know, historic trauma, historic violence, and placing it in a dystopian future that I think allows for both settler and indigenous audiences to have um, to have the opportunity to kind of think about it in a different way. Uh, with Night Raiders, everything that happens in that film comes from a place of truth, and so <clears throat> I think it, it's it's doing a great deal in terms of helping settler audiences understand that this is the history that exists in in this place, this land that we share now. Um, and this is truth and, 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 you know, if it takes placing it in the future and some sort of dystopian film for people to understand that, then, then that's the way forward. And, um, and I, yeah, I, I think it is coming at a very timely moment, you know, this, this last summer, um, there were hundreds of unmarked graves uncovered indigenous children at, at residential schools and, our communities knew that those graves existed and those stories stayed alive within our communities because there were many families who never saw their loved ones again. Um, 
And so this, this film came about at, at, in, in such a timely moment. And, and I think Canadian audiences are maybe a little bit more willing to accept and understand the, the magnitude of the grief that our people have experienced and continue to experience. Um, and, and I think Night Raiders serves as this beautiful vessel of story um, and, and human experience. Well, it was so great to be able to share this time with you, Elmaya Tail Feathers. Um, I, I, before we started recording, I spoke of my great reverence for for your documentary, and uh, I hope everyone in Guelph gets a chance to check it out. So, thank you for all your time today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And once again, that was El Maya Tail Feathers, and Gimani Bitson is part of the Guelph Film Festival, which starts screening a week from this coming Friday, so November the fifth. And it runs through December the 5th. And to find out all the details, the screenings, the access, to bypasses, whatever you need, go to guelphfilmfestival.ca. Stand by, though. Coming up next, after our musical break, we will get into a very different movie. Dune, the new Denny Villeneuve movie, based on the epic Frank Herbert novel, Did We Like It? You'll have to come back after the musical break to find out. You're listening to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. that happen just as you dream them. Yes. The test is simple. Remove your hand from the box and you die. What's in the box? Pain. And that was a clip from Dune. It is the new film from Denis Villeneuve, and it stars Timothy Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson, Oscar Isaac, Josh Brolin, Stellan Skarsgård, Zendaya, Jason Momoa, Javier Bardem, and a cast of thousands. I am now being joined on the line by Peter Salmon. Peter, how are you doing this fine afternoon? Yeah, I'm doing, doing good, doing good. Just uh, having a good time, but to do a review. Super excited. Let's do this. All right. <laughs> Wow, such hype. Uh, Appropriate, though, because there's a lot of hype around Dune. Uh, It's from Denis Villeneuve, uh, Quebec filmmaker of Summer Now Now. And Dune is one of those books they say is unfilmable. Uh, I think 
we have officially disproved that. But uh, Peter, you wanted to see Dune and review Dune. So um, why did you want to do, why did you want to do the Dune? Uh, well, even though I really actually did enjoy the Britney Spears documentary, it had been too long <laughs> since I uh, <laughs> went to a movie theater. And I think the listeners of End Credits would have appreciated that. Um, and uh, I myself, it hasn't been since Tenet. So I just, you know, I wanted to. And uh, uh, my wife, she wanted to go see it. I would have seen, I think, No Time to Die, too. But uh, I also wanted our review to be more uh, present. And also, mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure. Did you? Was it already reviewed by End Credits? No Time to Die. Yeah. No, no. I I went and saw it of my own initiative, though. So it it's it's fine. Yeah, but either either way, Dune's more recent, so I, I'm glad yeah. that we uh, choose it. And uh, also, and uh, I forget if it's no, I think it's just AVX. I saw it in IMAX. We have one, oh. and it was yeah, it was it was pretty phenomenal. So I recommend if you're in Toronto or uh, one of the areas with the IMAX, definitely see it in that. Oh, and 2D. I didn't even know it was 3D till after. I saw it in 2D, and I, I would recommend it in that sense. I don't think uh, Villeneuve is a real 3D guy. No, I think I think 3D has sort of gone away. I mean, I've I've been to the movies a number of times in the last couple of months, and I've never really seen the opportunity i mean i can't even recall mm. seeing anything being advertised at the guelph theater here or the one i go to up at woodlawn as being available in 3d i wonder if that's like a covid precaution thing because i mean even though you throw away your glasses at you never the, and yeah it just seems they're just more like i guess because they're, they weren't handing you the glasses anymore either it, it's always in a pile at the front of the cinema so yeah yeah, um, I actually don't think you need 3D to enjoy this, the the spectre, not not the spectre, the um, splendor of uh, of Dune. Um, I come at Dune not knowing much about the book other than it's reputed to be unfilmable, and I I know that I have seen the the David Lynch one. Um, <laughs> Same here. I have, I, I knew they did a kind of as lavish as they possibly could cable TV version, I think in 2000 or 2001. But again, I, I never felt uh, particularly uh, attracted to, to sitting down and watching it. Um, this though, uh, it managed to sell the whole idea of Dune um, in a way that makes it accessible Absolutely. To, to new people who have never read the book and have never had the inclination to read, read the book because... Oh, for sure. I haven't read the book. And yeah, it was... Because I mean... I, I could uh, follow along with it. Absolutely. Because all of like sort of the nomenclature and terminology and casts and houses and this and that, you know, it's kind of a turnoff. And that's... I mean... There are a number of reasons why Star Wars works, but one of the reasons Star Wars works well is because it does not have a lot of that. I mean, you, you're introduced to the idea of Jedis and the Empire and the Rebels and things, but there isn't things like, you know, this here is this character. They are part of this order and they have this lineage and, you know, all of, all of this sort of like front-end knowledge where you have to go in with like essentially a like a viewer's guide. Okay, what is this person's... <laughs> what is this person's cast and what is that cast history and why do they hate these other... So, I mean, th- that's kind of really the the gift of what Vill- Villeneuve does here is that 
It is immediately accessible. You get what information you need through the course of the film. And you can sort of sit back and enjoy the the grandiosity of it. Yes, I think it was very wise that he... And, and this isn't a spoiler. It's really the first thing you see. It's mm-hmm. part one. It's part one, and it's openly yeah. part one. So he was <laughs> able to actually uh, fit in a lot, but... Uh, you know, not to push too much. He was able to make it enjoyable and to really give a thorough look into what's needed for the next one and uh, as a part of the Dune story, but uh, mm. without shoving a lot in your face like, you know, Lynch uh, did and uh, a lot of other people have attempted. So I'm really the, glad uh, he went about that. The problem with the Lynch adaptation is that because it is like dense and mythological, it's the exact wrong thing to give to a filmmaker like lynch who doesn't care about straightforward narrative oh exactly yeah (laughs) so i mean it's it's, a very silly decision it's no wonder that film's a mess it's because um you're asking david lynch to keep you know all of these different narratives and casts and other systems in his head and it's like he he created a whole tv series about solving the murder of one girl and it's never solved so it yeah. <laughs> no, if anything it just brings up more questions and i am so okay with that i'm okay with it too but it just like dude it's kind of the wrong material no, uh, and for dude david is, lynch dude is such a huge blockbuster you know even just the book itself it might as well be a blockbuster so it's it needs to be someone like Villeneuve who is an art director but good at making blockbusters like genuine blockbusters that a lot are going to enjoy you well this know, is the reviews will be good but yeah. everyone will enjoy it as well I mean this is it, it it's I, I read the AV Club review and it, it basically like made the comparison like this is kind of like old-fashioned epic Hollywood filmmaking um and, and you can definitely feel the the Lawrence of Arabia influence because it's a big epic adventure in a desert so he's definitely channeling some of that uh I I, I thought of that too yeah a lot of that like 10 commandments is just a lot lot of films set in those areas at the same time though um I'm curious if some of it was filmed in you know uh, the desert and yeah the Saharan or or anywhere like that well, let me look here about the filming. Even if that's not the case, it, it looked like it. It was, yeah, it was amazing. Just the cinematography all around, right? All the shots. Yeah, no, the cinematography is great. Uh, the person who is the cinematographer is uh, Greg Frazier, who did Zero Dark Thirty. and Oh, he did, uh, yeah, uh, what after Zero Dark Thirty? Yeah, he did... Uh, he also did Rogue One and Rogue One, like the the end scene on the uh, the sort of tropical planet where they uh, where the, the last fight is. Um, he uh, like that's like really well shot. I, I really like the look of that planet at the end. So, yeah, he's a, he's an excellent. I mean, he's not. You know what? Uh, I, I knew uh, there was another one because um, mm-hmm. I, I like the ones you've mentioned, but you know what I mean? I'm not, you know, those are all, they're so mainstream or, you know, like run by a huge corporation. He did Foxcatcher and he did Lion, both phenomenal. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I think we actually might've, I don't know about Lion. I think we reviewed maybe, no, not Foxcatcher. Those before this started, but we maybe reviewed Lion, but either way, those are phenomenal works. And I think it shows why uh, Dune mm-hmm. is great. He can do yeah, those no. other films and he can do the uh, blockbusters like Zero Dark Thirty. Yeah, and the other thing, I mean, speaking of Star Wars, I had this thought because um, Dune, like the, the David Lynch Dune was made in 84, so it was obviously coming off of uh, 
you know, that Star Wars era where everybody was like trying to grab onto anything even remotely Star Wars related and make it into their own Star Wars, like Flash Gordon and Battlestar Galactica and Star Trek. And right, right, Dune, Dune was one of those things. I find like in terms of, you know, the tradition of like, like character design and costume design and things, this feels more like a Star Wars movie in, in yeah. that respect. It's, it's I, very I, high budget. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say though, I think, yeah, personally, I think it's better than at least the more recent Star Wars films. Like mm-hmm. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not a huge fan of that. So I want people to know it's not as uh, forcefully blockbuster as a lot of those. Um, no, no, but but, it, but absolutely, like especially, and you know, like I said, I don't love the the recent Star Wars, like the the shots of the planets and the galaxies, gorgeous, and it's like that here. Some of my favorites are the just standstill ones about the outside of a planet or the moon or something. But in terms of like the character design and like the outfit, like the outfit they wear on Arrakis that basically recycles your your moisture your sweat and uh and and keep, it keeps your body cool because it's so hot on rack like those outfits are really neat like some of the different armor the battle armor like the the various uh vehicles um even the the bad guy the baron played by stellan skarsgård who kind of oh he's phenomenal yeah who's so fat that he can't he, he's literally <laughs> unable to walk so he's he has this like um anti-gravity thing that allows him to float around like you could all see these as toys and I'm not I was purpose I was not purposefully trying to look at this movie through the lens of toys but it was a thought I had it's like I could really see these being as like you know cool toy I mean I would be very okay. I I, I question the appeal to kids of Dune, (laughs) but if (laughs) I think the toys would be very, very cool. Um, And I I mean, that's that's great attention to detail that, you know, everything looks cool and it looks functional too. It's got a lived in look. And I I think that is also to the, the credit of the filmmakers. Yeah, and they give enough description of uh, the gear that they're wearing to be, you know, impressed in that way. And Mm -hmm. uh, there's small little, uh, uh, connections of it with the plot like uh timothy chalamet's character he's able to uh for the first time put on the one suit in a, a better way than everybody else and it's assumed he already did but he didn't so that's already a hint there that there's something mm-hmm. something more special about him so even in the gear which is just great to look at also they sink into uh importance of the plot connection to it mm-hmm. yeah it, it all looks so great yeah and, i don't know um... who wrote it either but it was that was great uh john Saffitz. So good on him. (laughs) John Saffitz, who, amongst other things, wrote Prometheus. Yeah. Oh, and uh, it's sorry. It's uh, John Spates. But yeah, Prometheus, Doctor Strange, The Mummy, and Mm -hmm. uh, some others. Oh, upcoming Minecraft. (laughs) Cool. Minecraft. And then Eric Roth, who's uh, a long time, very well known. I think he's won Oscars too. Um, So they kind of have the best of both worlds because you have Villeneuve who's able to look at the bigger picture. You have Spadas who's, you know, good at this kind of world building and sci-fi stuff. And you have Eric Roth, who's just an all around good general screenwriter. So the the music too, right? It's Hans Zimmer. This is the most after, but it's, (laughs) you didn't know know till after. No, I wasn't paying too much attention to it. And I'm not, uh, a huge music guy you know i don't know how to play those uh, instruments whatever they're called yeah Um, (laughs) but i thought that was great i also what i find interesting um he said no to tenet because he wanted to do this he just preferred the uh 
the how, how it would be a bit more hard for Dune, you know. So he, he wanted a bit of a thrill there, and mm. I think he's a fan of the works. So I thought that was cool. I love Tenet, but I, I think Hans Zimmer made the right choice. Well, it's I mean he's already kind of done Inception, and so it's yeah, but he's already he's already done some. Oh, you know what? Actually, I don't think he has done any Dennis Villeneuve. So yeah, I know what you're saying. So um, no, I don't. I was gonna say he did. Blade Runner, but I don't think he did Blade Runner 2049. So yeah, no, but this is the most Hans Zimmer score like it, it, that that there has ever been. And I like his work. He's a great composer, but I mean, there was a picture of uh, I, I don't know if it was like a promotional still or what it was, but there's a picture of him like on a beach playing a piano on fire. And so I, when I was, <laughs> whenever I was like, heard the score in Do Not, that picture appeared in my head. It's like, yeah, that's that's what he was thinking as he was writing the music for this film. It's like, this piano's on fire! <laughs> it just, it, it just, it, it is the most Hans Zimmer score you will ever hear. Okay, so, and you, and you view that in a negative way. It took a, think, took a bit of the immersion away, or? I don't, I don't view it as a negative. I, I just think it was a little it was, overpowering it a in places. It was a little overpowering in places. It's Which not, is a negative comment, so you did, you gave it a negative. That's okay. It's not Sorry. subtle. It's not subtle. It's <laughs> fine, but it's not subtle. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess especially if you're an, uh, a more auditory person like you, or at least uh, somebody who focuses on scores, because uh, I, I I'm disappointed I, I uh, that I didn't know it was Hans Zimmer immediately. So <laughs> I knew immediately. Yeah, <laughs> but it's not subtle. But I mean, that's okay. It, it's uh, there. There are parts of it that work very, very well. But I mean, it's it's also um, I'm. It goes right up to the line of overbearing in a couple of places but i mean it's hans zimmer he's the operatic madman um you know i i have not been to one of his concerts i did however watch his concert film and you know his scores are appropriately massive and performative uh that you can like get up on a stage with like an orchestra and singers and perform the scores before an audience that's what he does and you know I'm I'm good with that. More power to him. He, he's he he is what he is. But just the score, um, it it the score is one of the co-stars of the film. Is what I'm getting. At. Yeah, you would have been okay with something <laughs> a bit more fresh, something a little more subtle in places. Because I mean, mm-hmm. this isn't like an action movie. Um, no more sci-fi. There's like there's action in it, obviously, but I mean there are very long stretches where there's not a lot of action, and it's all about character development. It's all about these relationships. It's about uh, Paul uh, dealing with his destiny, and I, I guess struggling as as this kid between two worlds. Uh, yeah. This and like this relationship very, with his mother too was very yeah. This imperial well world where he's inherit he's he's training to inherit his father's fiefdom and um the fact that his mother is apparently part of a like a religious order with superpowers who are trying to backdoor a messiah or something well i don't i don't (laughs) think it's even a religious order i think it's just kind of like amazonians it's a very distinct uh race that has you know a special uh a special ability so right there's just Um, but that that of course is fueled through a, a religion as well but right. I think it's honestly just for him. It's just genes, right? He just has her genes, which was cool. Just very mm-hmm. neat. It's just there, there's he's dealing with a lot. Um, it's it's kind of more coming of age story than sci fi action kind of thing. So it it is interesting in that regard. Um, but uh, yeah, it just Hans Zimmer just needed to tone it down a little. 
was there any casting that gave you similar reactions? Like, I don't know if they should have used this individual. No, I thought the casting all around. Was... Stan, is Stan, oh, it yeah, was spot okay, on. Phenomenal. Yeah. Even Batista. I love Batista. He's so great. He was, uh, I'm glad he didn't die. I'm glad he didn't die. I guess that's a spoiler. I said he didn't die. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, as you mentioned, there's uh, a part two in the offing. And I, I, from what I understand, um, there is a time jump in the book. So it, it, I know a lot of people are disappointed that there isn't like an announcement that part two is coming next summer or something, but um, there is a time jump in the book from uh, where Paul sort of is, is taken in uh, by the, by the Freeman and then to where the the rest of the story picks up several years later. So it, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think where the, the film kind of, it's clear that, and this was this is something that only came up very very recently that this was intended to be a part one, um, or at least I feel it was something that was only revealed recently that it was intended to be a part one. Well, I didn't even know. Uh, I didn't even know it was a fact like uh, until watching the film. And, and yeah, I saw where part one comes up. Part one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I, it's it's been talking about it for a couple of days that it's part one. But the thing is that well, the story. I find in this film, it's building up to what happens in the next film, because I, I think that this film ends in a very natural place in the narrative with Paul making an active decision. Well, and like you said, it would make sense if in the next uh, film, they also have skipped ahead a few years. They, uh, mm-hmm. they made his entry very clear. So mm-hmm. it's uh, we, we don't really need to, you know, but the, a, the a film, major focus of it. Right. But the film feels like it's leading up to the conclusion in the next film, like for this part one, instead of leading up to the end of part one, which is um, Paul sort of casting off all the expectations of what the Duke's son would do in this situation. And instead of making a decision to follow his own path. And I think that, again, that's a very natural place for the film to end, but it doesn't feel like the film is leading up to that with Paul, like taking up the lead and, and, going off and on, on his own sort of journey as opposed to where this where we think this is going to eventually end with it which is a big battle between the good guys and the bad guys which is not where this part ends so i think that there, there's i think that's a little bit of a i mean that's a bit of a nitpick in terms of how the the pacing is laid out but it, it just i i wish it it feels like it just it feels like a natural place to end this part but it it the buildup doesn't necessarily feel natural. And that's just, again, that's a very slight nitpick that I can't really talk in great deal detail about unless we're spoiling the whole damn thing. But yeah, it it just, I I wish that um, I wish I could take this as like part one uh, as like a complete thing. And then if we get part two, then that's a complete thing. But I mean, no, but it's, it's a very clear, it's like Lord of the Rings. It's a very clear, uh, part that's divided of a whole work they have planned, not something that could be viewed as a standalone. It's fun just to watch it by itself, but no. As, if there never is a sequel, I think the uh, there'll be definitely more disinterest of, of this one, so well, I hope it comes forth. I, I I can't see it not. It's already made, what, 220 million? Like, jeepers. Something like that, yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I think The Lord of the Rings is a great example. You know, each of those is like one of each movie ties into the other movie, but each 
chapter, each of those three chapters feels like a complete adventure on its own. So, yeah, but I, I think they could fill in the, the rest into the sequel. You're making it seem like it should be a show, and I do not want this to be <laughs> no, no, stolen I don't, by Disney. No, 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 no. That's not what I, I don't want it to be a show. I, I just, uh, you think it maybe three instead of two? No, no. My, my nitpick is just they, they, they build up. They spent all of the the first movie building up to the conclusion of the second movie instead of spending the first movie building up to the conclusion of the first movie. Oh, okay, I see what you, you know mean. what yeah. I mean. Yeah. Uh, well, the um, one thing I guess this is a, a negative. Um, it mm. was hard to determine with the climax. Well, was that the climax? Was that the climax? It was yeah. difficult at times to know exactly when it was going to end until I'd say the final kind of little duel that went on. Yeah, it's um, very low key. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Also, uh, just because we were talking about a little uh, the the duel, uh, Javier Bardem was was great. I, I'm not used to seeing him with blue eyes, so I couldn't tell at first. <laughs> I honestly, I thought it was maybe someone like impersonating Javier Bardem, like a more younger guy that like wanted to be Javier Bardem. But uh, no, it was, it was the man himself, and he was phenomenal. Yeah, was, he uh, he really he disappears is... into the role of uh, what's his character's name uh stigar and he was like the greatest spit i've ever seen like when it comes to it was phenomenal it may have been a stunt double doing that spitting out for him but it was (laughs) it was impressive it was stunt spit (laughs) yeah stunt spit no but he uh he he was great all of the uh small roles uh jason momoa outstanding yeah he's great yeah yeah oh everybody and uh, we haven't talked about her much but zendaya you know um, people's uh, complaint about her not being in it an extensive amount. It's so evident that it's to build up to her being main uh, in the next one, right? Like, yeah. the next one, it wouldn't surprise me if it's her and uh, Paul, uh, if it's Chani and Paul, like, mm-hmm. equal. Um, but yeah, she was she was really great in it, especially in the last, uh, last little kind of section it where could, she uh, was it- there in person. It could be, and I, I think part of the issue is that she's built up almost entirely as the love interest, too, which is, um, I, I think, probably gets people's goat a little as one of the, sort of the few female characters in the film that, you know, her her relationship to Paul is built up almost entirely as her being his love interest, and instead of, like, being a, like a strong leader amongst the the freemen in her own right and um... I, I guess i think it's more he views her and yes there's some romance but it's also clear she's the one in charge like controlling him teaching him and helping him mm-hmm. uh, get a more immersed into the fremen so I, yeah i, I think that, i know what you mean but i i think there was enough strength shown through her that it, it's not Mm-hmm. Uh, a main focus her being a love interest I, I guess um, I guess it depends on how you read it which is I mean that's stuff that you, you can't control and, and other people but I mean you do get Rebecca Ferguson who knocks it out of the park I think as uh, as uh, Jessica Paul's mother and the, the consort of the Duke uh, Oscar Isaac he doesn't get a lot to do but he's <laughs> he's he's pretty good at being regal and uh, you know, just being a good old a uh, good old pa you know he's yeah it is He's a his, good dad. His beard game was on point. So. Yeah, yeah. His one line, it was, um, you know, I don't care if you take over. I don't care if you win the wars. You know, I, I love you. You're my son. And that's all I care about. Yeah, it's, nice, uh, it's a nice Paw Kent moment. Yeah. He's just clearly a, a loving father. You know, there's not much else about him. You know, we don't get too many in-depth details, but he's a nice dad. 
and he goes out like a gangster so it's... yeah yeah exactly I don't wanna... <laughs> it's yeah that's hardly a spoiler the but... second he was like uh, i love you son no matter what i love you son i was like uh-oh yeah he's not i feel like we're not gonna see him in the sequel yeah (laughs) fair enough yeah no uh i I second momoa because he brings a lot of uh sort of lightness and a lot of like great sort of swashbuckling energy yes Uh, his final little fight is so good probably my favorite part like my favorite standalone part is so great Mm. yeah he's he's really great um in sort of like injecting just that right energy um as it's, kind of it, like a han solo type i guess um just uh, like you know the whole thing with everybody's fighting with swords and things uh, <laughs> in a sci-fi movie you know with you know those those fight scenes he gets where he's sort of like it, it has a very kind of um earl flynn flavor which uh is a lot of fun and i guess that adds to mm-hmm. kind of like the whole the old hollywood kind of feeling with with the film as well that you get these really nifty uh sword fights and uh jason momoa with his with his long hair billowing and yeah aha <laughs> oh yeah anybody uh you know uh, <laughs> interested in, in him sexually i think will have a great a great time <laughs> He's acting yeah. too, but I mean, if you know you're interested in that way, that's, yeah, go, that's he's, it, go, go watch he's a, it. He's a good-looking man. Yeah, um, it's intrigued me. Um, because I'm not a huge like the DCU is whatever, but I, I it's made me more intrigued to watch uh, Aquaman because I know it's a, more of a standalone with him. And, and Aquaman yeah. is the closest we will ever get to a good live-action Masters that's, of the Universe movie. That's what. Okay, I'll <laughs> check it out. Then I'll check it out because <laughs> I I think that's. But I mean, he's he's like 90% of the reason why that movie works is because mm-hmm. he's, he's got this great sort of laid back slacker hero energy uh, where he can be tough when he needs to be. But the rest of the time, he's like kind of a reverend, like, well, this is BS, this whole searching for lost kingdoms. And stuff. so, yeah. Um, and yeah, he, he's, I think that that role suits him rather well. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, it's hard to find a bum in this cast, like someone who's not pulling their weight. Everyone, everyone's so great. Yeah. Um, and- uh, yeah, I can't, I've been looking through and it, it was just all, and just great casting. It wasn't even like their acting either. Like it wasn't just the acting. It was the casting who they picked for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, like everything looks great. Everything, uh, well, I was going to say everything sounds great, but <laughs> there are moments. Uh, but yeah, it's, it, I, I do wonder, um, I think people are being drawn to this for the spectacle. I do wonder how much uh, people are going to connect with the material, though. I did I find... Fun, like you said, it's uh, it, it's like Blade Runner 2049. I don't think people need to see the first. It's just fun. Even if you don't get some stuff, it doesn't matter. Just kind of enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll just maybe make you check out the Wikipedia of it more, the wiki. <laughs> oh, the, the wiki... Of, yeah, the Dune of... wiki of like the like the regular wiki like the list of like dune terminology and like technology and things that is Huge. that is my that that'll blow your mind yeah. and um we also see the I, we haven't even mentioned the sandworms which is oh, like a, the whole thing like it's we a whole thing about visuals and yeah it wasn't just the the shots like the setting uh landscape visuals the 
the villains, especially the creatures, yeah, where, where it was phenomenal. Um, you you do you get a couple like clear good looks at it, but even when you just see the dust, uh, the sand dust, and because of it underneath, it, it's scary. It really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, one of my earliest true like fears was um, the SpongeBob episode where there's one of those, <laughs> and it's it's I don't know why, but it scared the heck out of me. And then when I was young too, Dreamcatcher, there's a smaller one in the toilet. It's just those things really freak me out. So yeah. you didn't mention the most famous sandworms of all in Beetlejuice. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. Beetlejuice. Where they is that purgatory where they end up with the sandworms? I think so, yeah. I haven't that seen that Beetlejuice be? in a long time. But yeah, yeah, there's huge tapeworms essentially, and they're they're freaky. But there's cool uh technology they use. The um uh the species what are they called again the um the freedmen yeah the freedmen they have really great technology used uh, for the sole purpose of the thumper yeah yeah keeping away keeping them away or, or pushing them to another direction for their their usage and, and it's so funny because early on paul's like doing the research of of arrakis and it's like well the the, the freed people in arrakis do these uh silly walks across the desert so they don't yeah, attract the attention of the sandworms and every time I, there was like but but every time there was like a scene where they were like walking around the desert, I'm like, why aren't you doing the silly walk? You're supposed to do the silly walk. <laughs> I know. I guess they only uh, they only seem to do it when they recently saw one of yeah. the worms. So I guess, I guess. there was that they just took a risk. And it's like, what if it's so deep down but close by and you just don't hear it? But I was I was the minister of silly walks watching this because I was just like, where's the silly walks? I won't. <laughs> That's it. I was a little disappointed because there it's always it's fun, right? Yo, especially with TikTok booming right now and like videos of just people doing fun steps and stuff. You know, they should have really taken advantage of that. It could have boomed. It could be honestly, if if they had worked it in a TikTok, he'd be at a billion right now. He'd be at a billion, not two twenty. That's nothing. He'd be at a billion. It would have like, opened. Couple, yeah, the couple times you see the dance, though, it, it is nice. It's cool. But you're what right. A- that that should have been placed in a bit more. Well, yeah, no, it's just uh, that was another somewhat minor nitpick. Is like you're not doing That's the silly the walk. Is. We're we're trying to find these little <laughs> small small negatives, but it's it's an absolutely go see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's a beautiful film. Um, well acted. Also, I don't think did we mention old Josh Brolin? He was funny. He was really <laughs> funny at his character. <laughs> Josh Brolin. Um, True yes. devotion to Oscar Isaac, the monarchy, or I guess the uh, the Duke, not a monarch, but well, kind of. I mean, Timothy Chalamet's next in the, but uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was great. Josh Brolin was great. No, he he was great, and uh, everyone, but I mean, everybody was great. So yeah, and he, uh, but he was a fan of you know more uh, British works. Uh, Charlotte Rampling was really great in it too. She's a reverend mother. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no. fan, uh, she's great in more recent works like you know Broadchurch. So. Yes, yeah. everybody. If you haven't seen Dexter, you'll like her in this for sure. <laughs> if you haven't seen Dexter, yeah. If you haven't seen Dexter, season eight. <sighs> all right, <laughs> I, I think I think we've let enough juice into this. Anyway, uh, Peter, if people wanted to uh, talk Dexter, I don't know how can people find you on the internet. <laughs> what I would say is she is she's in season eight and she is horrendous. She is. Her character is one of the most hated in Dexter. So that's what I'm saying. Good to, if good you to see know. Dexter, good to just block her. Yeah. Um, but she's great. <laughs> see Broadchurch. <laughs> to answer your question, first off, everybody, go see Dune, please. Uh, I'm Peter Wesley Salmon. You can find me on TikTok and on uh, Twitter, Mr. Towerack, and YouTube for Mr. Towerack. I almost forget about old YouTube. 
And that is it for this week's show. We hope you liked it, and if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on our website at endcreditsradioshow.com. You can download it from the Guelph Politicast channel every Friday at Podbean, or you can get it through your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, and Spotify. And when you're on Spotify, you can find the playlist for much of the music that you hear on the End Credits show in Spotify. Just search for End Credits on CFRU. You can also find us on social media on Facebook at End Credits Radio Show and on Twitter at End Credits Radio. I will be back here on CFRU tomorrow at 5 p.m. for news and politics on Open Sources Guelph with Scotty Hertz. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson. You can find my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. And uh, in addition, this week I am the special guest on the Bloody Blunts Cinema Club podcast, talking about the remake of Evil Dead, which was released in 2013. It was a fun conversation, and uh, I invite you all to listen to it. So whatever you listen to this show on, in terms of your podcast app of choice, you can probably find the Bloody Blunts Cinema Club. So check that out this week. And stay tuned for more great programming here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We will be back next Wednesday at 3 p.m. for another edition of this show and credits, and we will see you then. Thank you.